Good morning, everyone. I'm glad that you're here. Um, excited to kind of see these fall uh, ministries start up, whether it's... Uh, oh, thank you, dear. Whether it's Awana, whether it's, uh, of course, men's groups, been going for several months, whether it's uh, small groups, home groups, uh, ladies' Bible studies, school kind of kicking off... Um, I'm kind of bummed, though, to be honest with you. Uh, <clears throat> I have this conflict of schedule on Sunday mornings, and now I have this conflict of hair color, uh, getting a little gray around the edges. And as Pete mentioned, if you've got a little gray, that you're not really, you're too old for the study. Uh, I wonder if before Saturday I get a little just for men, a little, little work a little on the sides, just on the sides. Uh, no, it's not just on the sides. <clears throat> I was looking forward to it. Now they're going to be sold out at Walmart come Saturday. They're going to be sold out because all you guys got the same idea, right? I want to be a part of this worldview study with teenagers. We just encourage you guys to, to, uh, to participate, to, for your kids to participate. I think it's going to be a great st- study. It's going, to be a, it's going to be very interactive in the sense that it's going to be a lot of question and answers. And it's, it's good. It's good to have those opportunities where when something's on our mind, when something's on our heart, when something's troubling us or when we're curious and, and excited about something, that we can go, you know, that we can ask questions and uh, we can ask questions about what God says and uh, look those things up together and discover that truth together and learn from one another. So we're excited. We're excited. Of course, uh, Pete has come uh, quite a while ago to talk to us about this, and so we're excited to get it up and going. Uh, last week's message, we had our missionaries. They were from South Africa. In fact, he's still from South Africa, but they're living in Spokane, Hareton, Molly Roots. And uh, they were here. They're living in Spokane now uh, as part of kind of linked in with the same missions organization, but uh, taking on kind of a new role talking about um, discipling young people. Uh, that's kind of their, their uh, uh, new particular focus in, in missions is uh, embracing, uh, discipling young folks specifically in the area of their sexuality. And so the, the part of the ministry and the people that are discipling them is called uh, sexual, Sexuality Unmasked. And it's really, uh, I think, a much needed um, area of the Christian um, world view um, that is... We're not getting, as believers, we're not getting a lot of traction in that area, let's put it that way. And so they really feel compelled by the Lord to dive into that um, feet first, head first, family and all, and to uh, really work hard in that area to uh, encourage people and disciple them into a, a biblical understanding of sexuality and, uh, and help people in that way. And he spoke last week about what? Faith. He, he said in his... South African accent that I will not uh, repeat, but he's going to throw his two cents worth in on this idea because there's been millions and millions of sermons on and around the idea of faith, and he wanted to throw in his two cents worth, and his sermon last week really got me thinking, uh, and, and he, he mentioned this, if you remember from last week, he said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, because faith is risky. Faith is risky. 
Very risky. And we live in a world that analyzes risk to death, literally. If you look up on the computer, do a little Wikipedia search on these two words, risk assessment, it'll say this. Broadly speaking, a risk assessment is the combined effort of two things, identifying and analyzing potential future or future events that may negatively impact individuals, assets, and or environment. Number two, making judgments on the tolerability of the risks on the basis of risk analysis while considering influencing factors. That's the risk evaluation piece. To put it in simpler terms, a risk assessment determines possible mishaps, their likelihood and consequences, and the tolerances for such events. The results of this process may be expressed in a quantitative or qualitative fashion. Risk assessment is an inherent part of a broader risk management strategy to help eliminate any potential risk-related consequences. There is a worldview in this definition of risk assessment, right? There is a worldview that's built into that, that our world plays by those particular rules. These risk assessments affect us in very tangible ways. They affect uh, your auto insurance, your home insurance, your health insurance. They affect the cost of the goods that you buy. I don't know if you know this, but 85% or more uh, of the cost of a motorcycle ham- helmet is not about production. That 85% goes to specifically to litigation that has dealt with the risks of riding a motorbike, the consequences that can or cannot come from riding a motorbike. So you wonder why a helmet costs so much? Uh, risk assessment. Not only do risks affect our, uh, our, the things that we buy and affect our lives, uh, they affect us in our pocketbook, but they also affect our relationships. They, f- they affect who we choose to marry, who we choose to, uh, where we choose to live, when and where, uh, and how many kids we may have. We, we go through these risk assessments and through our thought processes in these areas. They affect who our friends are. Uh, what we choose to do for work and where. We are hardwired, in a sense, to evaluate risk. We are hardwired, in a way, to uh, evaluate risk. It's part of our nature. It's part of our nature. If we all marched out in a streaming traffic of 395 on a busy Labor Day weekend, we would all stand at the white line wondering, Uh, when to cross, and we would do this if we had to get to the other side of the road, and we would evaluate risk. It's hardwired into our safety. There's some good aspects to it. I'm not going to dive so much into that. Uh, There's some good aspects aspects to our nature of of analyzing risk. But there's also some negative aspects of it, too. But in (coughs) in a world that's scared to death to take any risks... Uh, we're called to actually have a f- risky faith in Jesus. That's what Herod was saying last week. He says we're called to, we're, we're commanded, if you want to be even more bold, we're commanded that our faith is risky. It's risky. So two questions as we get going this morning. 
How does the riskiness of our faith affect our decisions? That's the first question, if you want to write it down. Uh, the second one, it's maybe a little, bit, uh, a little bit more finger in your face, is God bigger in our lives than the risks that He's asking us to take? Is God bigger in your life? Is God bigger in my life than the risks that He's leading us to? We're going to look at some stories about that uh, as we go through today. Some valuable questions to ask ourselves and to talk about as families, talk about in our small groups and our friendships and so on. Herod mentioned last week Hebrews 11, the faith chapter in the Bible. And uh, it really got me thinking throughout the week, and so I kind of dove in. And, and there's, a great, there's a great study that could be done that could be stretched out, if you will, through Hebrews chapter 11. And we're not going to go that far. I'm going to give you the, the fast and, and quick cliff notes. But do you know how many action points there are in Hebrews 11? The faith chapter? All of these patriarchs through the Bible and, and Christ followers through the Bible? That as they followed him, that they had to take risky action. They had to take steps of faith. There's over 40. There's over 40 action items that were done. I'm going to read through them really fast. And, uh, and then we'll move on to where we're going with it. But by faith, if you just put by faith in front of these 41 things, uh, it makes quite an impressive list. By faith, we understand creation. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Enoch was taken away. By faith, Noah reverently prepared the ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed God's call to go. Abraham dwelt in the land by faith. Sarah received strength to conceive by faith. All of them died believing and embracing God's promises by faith. Abraham offered up Isaac. Isaac blessed Jacob. Jacob blessed all of Joseph's sons. All by faith. Joseph mentioned the exodus. Moses was hidden as a baby by faith of his parents. Moses identified as a Hebrew. Moses fearlessly forsook Egypt and followed God by faith. Moses kept the Passover. Actually, all of Israel kept the Passover. Israel passed through the Red Sea by faith. The walls of Jericho fell by faith. Rahab was saved from death by faith. And then there's other leaders that the writer of Hebrews includes. And this is where... <coughs> As we go through these, this is where I'm going to spin into the next passage of the sermon. Uh, because the very first one, the very first one is the one that stood out to me. Talking about these other leaders. And they subdued kingdoms by faith. They subdued kingdoms. They walked in faith to God. They walked uh, uh, and they subdued kingdoms. That one kind of stood out to me. Because actually we have a... Where we'll go after this is a story about not subduing kingdoms and all that goes with not following God. But by faith they subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire by faith. We could use some of that right now over in Seattle and Portland. Different uh, uh, communities in our nation that are uh, on fire regularly. Um, and actually, we have brothers and sisters in the Lord that are embracing this very, this very idea by faith. Quenching the violence of fire by bringing the hope that's found in Christ to areas like Seattle and Portland. But it's done by faith, right? 
done by faith. By faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong by faith, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women's, women received their dead to life again. They were, willing, <coughs> were willingly tortured, withstood mockings and scourgings, were imprisoned, were stoned, were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain by the sword, wandered in sheep, <coughs> wandered in sheep and goat skins, were destitute, were afflicted, were tormented, wandered on deserts, mountains, dens, and caves. These followers of God were, and they did it all by faith. And Hebrews 11 says at the end, all obtained a good testimony through faith, but did not receive the promise so that, and here's the reason why, so that we could share in the promise together. So we could share in that promise together. Right? So we're called to, to, to join in, to join in on this faith journey, as it were, to live by faith. After hearing this list, let's examine a few more of those questions. I'll repeat, repeat the first two. How does the riskiness of our faith affect our, action, our decisions? We can see in Hebrews 11, even in the cliff notes that I read you, and I would encourage all of us to read the whole chapter, we can see even in the cliff notes that it was risky but it didn't seem to stop their decision-making process and their following God. Is God bigger in our lives than the risk he's asking us to take? I would say that uh, Hebrews 11, definitely that's a yes for them. That's a yes for them. God's way bigger than the risk he was asking them to take. So then what holds us back from living a risky Christian life? What happens when we don't operate in faith? What happens when we don't believe that God is bigger than the risks that are out in front of us? There's a lot of stories in the Bible that, that address this specific issue, that address these specific actions or inactions that people took. One such story, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of the day, is in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. I would venture to say that the book of Numbers is not on anybody's top 20 reading list when it comes to the Bible, right? Am I wrong? Does anybody just love to read through the book of Numbers for the sake of the book of Numbers, right? It's not on anybody's top seller list. But there's so much valuable, valuable things that happen through the book of Numbers. This area that we're going to go to is an often preached, often used passage so I guess kind of like Herod, I'm going to throw my two cents in on Numbers 13 and 14, but hopefully from a little bit different angle as we look into the passage. See, a lot of Numbers 13 sermons are about you overcoming your giants, about you conquering uh, unconquerable ground in your life. And, and those are good and great sermons and great topics and great things for us to talk about. I'm going to come from a little different angle. So as we do a quick setup to chapter 13, let's just remember these things, that God's guided Israel out of Egypt, as we kind of heard in the Hebrews 11 story. He's cared for them, provided for them. He's gave them the Ten Commandments, set up the tabernacle, uh, brought them to the edge of the promised land where they now in Numbers 13 
have got to do some confronting. And God, first point I want to make here today is that God gives risky assignments as we walk with Him. God is giving Israel a risky assignment. What's going to be their reaction? What's going to be their, their, the takeaway? How are they going to respond? Let's pick it up in Numbers 13 verses. Well, we'll start in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Right then and there should fill us with faith. It should fill them with faith. When God says, hey, I'm going to give you something, is God slack in His promise? Is God short in His promise-keeping ability at all? No, He's not. So He's saying, which I'm going to give to the children of Israel, from each tribe to their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. Everyone a leader among them. So Moses has this task that God lays out for him. He says, hey, pick 12 guys, one from each tribe, Pick 12 guys, I have an assignment, I have something that I'm going to give you as a family. A lot of it's about the land, but it's more than just the land. This assignment's going to expose things that are really unhealthy. There's two guys specifically that God picks out. Verse 6 tells us, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephthah, and from the tribe of tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun. Now you say, who's this Hosea guy? If you skim down, skim down to chapter, or verse 16, these are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hosea, son of Nun, Joshua. Joshua gets a name change from Moses. Joshua, to obviously, uh, if we know much about the Bible at all, Joshua followed Moses in leadership, in that leader role over the nation of Israel. So we got Caleb and Joshua specifically that are singled out, and we'll get into that in a minute. But here's the task. Here's the assignment. Verse 17 says, Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are, <clears throat> are like camps or they like strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not, and be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now that was, that, that, that was God's assignment for them. And in, in essence, you could boil it down this way. Hey, get a group of 12 guys, go check it out. Make note of what you see. Take note of what's there. Take note of who's there. Take note of how profitable the, the ground is. And, and uh, we do this on a regular basis. If we have people that come to us and would like us to farm a piece of their ground, well, hey, what do we do? We jump in the pickup and we go check it out. Is it good ground? Is it not good ground? Is it something that's workable or not workable? Is it close enough? Is it big enough? Right? We do all kinds of those types of assessments, if you will, to see that if it's something that's beneficial. And essentially, God is saying that as to a nation of people that he's been leading through the wilderness. He says, hey, I want you to go check this out. And it wasn't necessarily for his benefit. Like, did God not know what the land was like? 
Did he not have complete knowledge? No, of course he did. No, he wanted them to go look and see because he's doing something in them that is going to be absolutely crazy. He's stirring in them something that, uh, and, and dealing with issues in them as a nation and them as individuals that's going to be really telling as the story continues to unfold. The second point I want to make is God creates opportunities for people to trust him. Aha. <clears throat> uh-huh. Got a typo in my notes. Let's keep going. Number two, God creates opportunities for people to trust him. Numbers 13, look at verse 27. Let's pick the story up there. Then he told him, then they told him. So this is the report back from the spies after 40 days. Verse 27 of Numbers 13. Then they told him, <clears throat> told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Earlier in that passage in verse 13, it describes the fact that they brought back a cluster of grapes that had to be tied on a pole and packed between two guys. That's a lot of grapes, right? A cluster of grapes. Where's she at? Linda, do you have any grapes growing on your vineyard that requires two guys and a stick between them to, to pack that cluster of grapes? <laughs> I love the optimism. I don't know if you heard what she said, but she said, not yet. She's working on it, right? Uh, That's how big the fruit was. Verse 28, Nevertheless, the people who dwelt in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Initially... The spies gave a real... That's an honest report. There's no, they, they, they're not injecting anything there. They're giving an honest feedback about what they saw. All of these tribes were enemies of Israel. And of course, in verse 29, the Amalekites, who dwell in the land of the south. The Amalekites were the very first tribe that attacked Israel as they came through the Red Sea. And they put themselves in the position to be Uh, kind of an eternal enemy of God in doing so because they didn't come and fight head on with the guys. The Amalekites, it says in the book of Exodus, came from behind and attacked the most vulnerable. So God had a particular disdain for them that uh, we actually, there's threads and it's a whole other subject. Uh, There's threads all through the Bible. Haman was an Amalekite. There's threads all through the Bible of of the... uh, the battles between Israel and the Amalekites. But this is an honest assessment. Verse 27 through 29, it's an honest assessment. But it's Caleb that rises up in verse 30 with the right perspective that that should uh, impact us as we make assessments. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. That's a great perspective. That's a great understanding of God's promise to say that, hey, I'm going to deliver this land to you. Caleb says, hey, let's just go do it. You know, let's go do it. Now's our chance. Now's our chance. 
Now's our time. God's called us to do this. He's already said that he's going to give us the land. He's going to promise us the land. Let's just go take it. Unfortunately, fear and doubt were crept in. Fear and doubt bubbled up to the top. In verse 31 it says, But the men who had gone up with him were <clears throat> said this, We are not able to go up against people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report to the land which they had spied out, saying, The land which we have gone, <clears throat> the land in which we have gone as spies is the land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people from whom we saw are men of great statue, stature. Then we saw giants, the descendants, descendants of Anak, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had died in the wilderness, why has this Lord brought us <clears throat> to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's select a leader and return to Egypt. And what you see there in verses 31 through chapter 14, verse 4, is Israel falling into an old, old, original sin trap. And that original sin trap is controversial. That original sin trap is sensitive. It's touchy. And we don't like to talk about it. And the reason, I'm going to tell you right up front, and I'm going to get real down and personal, the reason why we don't like to talk about it is because people have been victimized. Maybe some of us have been victimized in various ways. Maybe a business deal gone wrong. Maybe it's a more uh, sinister than that. Maybe it's an abusive situation. Maybe it's a, a uh, you name it. I'm not trying to let, make light of anybody here or anybody anywhere that hasn't been a victim of sin. But Israel's falling into a trap that's full of faithlessness because they're falling into the trap of playing the victim. At the end of the sermon, we'll see where God calls us out of being the victim and onto being the overcomer. But there's a whole list of faithless statements in these verses. We're not able. They're stronger than we. It's a land that it devours its inhabitants. Sometimes I feel that way about some of my farm ground. It's kind of <laughs> devouring. The people who we saw are men of great stature, and, and we saw giants. Sure, there's giants in the land. Absolutely. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Sound familiar? That was their old party line when they were out in the wilderness. Right? Oh, if we'd have just died, it would be better to go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back into slavery. Or maybe, well, at this point they're saying, oh, even if we'd have died in the wilderness, it would be better. 
Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children, and here they just come out and say what their mindset is. Why did we come here that our ladies and our kids would be victims? And they're proclaiming their identity as a victim. It's dangerous. It's faithless to stay in that spot. It's better for us to return. In fact, not only is it better for us to return, they go on to say, let us all select a leader and return to Egypt. So they're willing to wipe away God's anointed leader, Moses. They're willing to disregard the report of Caleb and Joshua. They're willing to forego what God has promised them. They're willing to cash it all away to stay a victim. They're willing to give it all back to stay a victim. It's unhealthy. To the fact that if you skim all the way down to verse 10, verse 10 says, and the congregation, this is, we'll come back to what Joshua said, but to the point that in verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They were willing to commit murder to maintain their identity of being a victim and not walk by faith. Now, Joshua and Caleb stand against the victim mentality of their countrymen. So their statements are faithful statements. Look there in verses 6 and 9, specifically. 6 through 9. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephthah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. It's a symbol of agony. It's a symbol of... of, uh, uh, frustration. It's a symbol of being broken before the Lord. And they spoke, verse 7 says, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. This is a good place, they're saying. This is exactly what, where God is leading us, they were saying. He's going to provide just what we need, they were saying. It's a great place. It's awesome. It's an exceedingly good land. Verse 8 says, And if the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. And Joshua brings the warning in verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. We can't live a Christian life that's risky if we're going to be full of fear like Israel was in Numbers 13 and 14. We have to be fearless. Fearless. It's a good place to be. If the Lord delights in us. In other words, if we have good relationships with the Lord, we have good relationship with the Lord because we're following what God says. And they, he, was, he was encouraging them, don't stop here. Don't turn around. Keep following. Keep trusting. Keep believing what God was saying and where God was leading us to go. It's a faithful statement. Don't rebel. Don't rebel against the Lord. 
And definitely don't fear the people of the land. In fact, he turns it, he spins it there in verse 9 and says, They are our bread. They're our bread. Right? We're going to, we'd say in football, let's eat them up. Let's devour them. It's not a physical thing where we're going to rip them, tear them apart and physically eat somebody. But we're going to chew them up and spit them out and keep moving to our next opponent is the concept. Right? That's what Joshua is saying. That's what Joshua was encouraging them to embrace. And he says their protection has departed from them. A comparative statement of all of these Amalekites and all of these tribes and how good they think that they can protect themselves against the creator of the universe. No comparison, right? No comparison. Like, their protection has departed them because God is coming on the scene. God is, wants to usher us into the land. He's going to provide the victory time and time and time again. Their protection's gone. There's no, there's no comparison, right? If this is what God says that we're to do, will He not provide? Will He not protect? Will He not bulldoze away into the ground? Will He not go before us? It's a mindset that Joshua was trying to instill into them. So he says, the Lord is with us. Don't fear our opponent. Needless to say, needless to say that the people, well, we see in verse 10, the congregation said then, let's just stone them. Let's just stone them and go back. The glory of the Lord appealed, appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. God shows up. Uh, God's not showing up to throw a party. Let's read on. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I've performed among them. See, God has a way of dealing with faithlessness while He protects the innocent. He says in verse 12, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. He's ready to start all over. He's ready to start all over with Moses. Say, hey, you know what? Forget about these guys. They're not going to follow. They fought me all the way through the wilderness. Now I bring them to the promised land, and now they want to continue to rebel. They want to continue to live in fear. They want to continue to not have faith in what I say. They want to continue to be the victim. I'll start all over. And I think God would have started all over had it not be for the, uh, the conversation that Moses has with them following. Let's read that conversation. Moses said to the Lord, <clears throat> I'd be going e at this point if I was Moses. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. He will hear, they'll hear about what you want to do, God. For by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they, will tell, <clears throat> and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, 
If you wipe them out, God, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. Who would have the faith to stand by Moses while he was telling God that? Anybody? Anybody want to raise your hand? Like, I'd be like, I'd be, eh, eh, eh. You keep talking, Moses. Keep him distracted. I'll stand way over here. Right? It was bold. Moses was bold. So he goes on to pray. He says, Now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the to the children, to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of these people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgotten this people, from, <clears throat> uh, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. And Moses is doubling down. Moses is doubling down in prayer that God would continue to work with the rebellious people. He's doubling down, saying, hey, you've been, forgiven. you've been forgiven us all along. Why stop now? Why stop now? Just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. God's response in dealing with faithlessness is interesting. He says, then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. But truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's a great promise all by itself. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who reject me see it. God lays out the truth. You want to continue to put God to the test by not following Him? It's a bad seat to sit in. Real bad seat to sit in. God throws out an exception in verse 24. He says, but my servant Caleb, and here's a great example to follow. There's a great description here of somebody that walks by faith, that's willing to do what it takes to possess the promises of God. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has now followed me fully. See, Caleb followed God fully because he was willing to trust fully in what God said even in spite of all that he saw in front of him physically. You guys get that? Caleb was willing to follow God fully in faith in spite of what he saw in front of him physically. That's the different spirit. That's what God was driving at. He, that's what God wanted for all of the nation of Israel. And you really only have two guys, three guys including 
maybe four if you throw in Aaron, a little bit of my own uh, conjecture there. But you only have a few guys that are really in that camp at this point. He's followed me fully, and I will bring into the land, <clears throat> and it goes on to say in verse 24, and I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Verse 25, now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the sea. So God is turning them around as one body, as one people group. He's turning them around because of his discipline, because of their faithlessness, because of their rebellion, because of their unwillingness to walk in faith and their willingness and desire to always want to be the victim, he turns them around. And verse 26 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Um, a couple of great verses that uh, explain the fact that God hears everything. Verse 28, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. And of all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except Caleb and Joshua, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. That's pretty heavy discipline. That's a tough day to be a 20-year-old. That's a tough day to be anybody in this congregation because it wasn't just those that were 20 and above that were affected by God's discipline. Everybody was affected by God's discipline. Everybody. You say, how is that true? The younger people eventually got to go in 40 years later. That is true. But they went in without their older siblings. They went in without their parents. They went in without their grandparents. They went in without the people that they grew up with, some of them. Think that they weren't affected? They were affected. Everybody was affected. And everybody gets infected by this idea that we have to maintain status quo and hold on to a victim mentality in our culture. The victim mentality in our culture that everybody else owes me something because of what I've suffered. I'm not mitigating the fact that people have suffered. Many of us, as I said earlier, have suffered greatly. But we have a virus in our culture that's way worse than COVID-19. A million times worse than this pandemic that's splattered all over the nose, all over the news. All over the nose. Did I really say that? I did say that. Eh, quick edit. That virus is the idea that somebody owes me something because of what I've suffered or what my people have suffered. And if I maintain a victim status, I will always get something coming this way. I get it. I get it that, they're, that they're, we've all been victim and victimized to some level, up or down. 
We've all been affected by somebody else's sin in some capacity. I understand that. Let's be real and say that our own sin has affected us and our own sin has affected other people as well. So that kind of levels the playing field as it were. Fairness left, you know, in the garden prior to Genesis 3. Like there is nothing fair in the world. That's just the way it is. So we can't say, well, what's, you know, what's what and what's what and always trying to balance the scales, especially when it comes to this mentality of being the victim. As Christ followers, we're not called to be victims. We're called to rise out of the status of being a victim and to be victorious. That's what God was trying to, to encourage. That's what Caleb and Joshua and Moses were trying to encourage the nation of Israel to get and to see and to say, hey, let's step forward because if we step in faith and we take on this land, guess what? We're victorious. We're victorious right now. Caleb said, let's go do it right now. It's something that has to happen right now. And I'm telling you, if you struggle with the mentality of being a victim, you need to deal with it right now. I need to deal with it right now. I'm the victim of my own stupidness half the time that I have to deal with like on the spot. Like yesterday. Because my problem is, I'm, I'm going to share a funny story. It's not, it wasn't so funny at the time, but it's kind of funny now. I get to spinning my wheels and doing so many different things that I forget back to where I started to do. And so yesterday was a busy day, a lot of farming activity, a lot of stuff happening. I have relatives, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were there with their log truck working in the shop, doing a brake job. I'm trying to go get the baler ready to bale third cutting because that needs to be done. And I got a stupid manure truck that's in my way. And so I go out and I start the manure truck. And then I grab the leaf blower to go blow off my baler. And on a, walking out there and I stop, Tammy's going, hey, can you help me with this? I was like, yeah, sure. And I set the leaf blower down. I go back to the shop. I'm fixing Tammy's little, which is a very important project that affects today's lunch. So I did not want to not do that because our French fry cutter was missing a screw and it wouldn't work right without the screw and I want French fries for lunch today. You guys give me an amen? amen. All right, now we're on the same page. So I go back to the shop and I'm fixing that and then in the meantime my brother-in-law says, hey, can you help me with these brakes? And so I help him with doing a brake job on the drop axle on his log truck and putting new tires and wheels on. And I thought, oh my goodness! <coughs> Nathan's truck sitting out there running. It's been running for 45 minutes. I don't know how much diesel's in that. So never quite sure how much diesel in Carlson's putting a rig. I do know what color it is. I, do, I did know what color the diesel would be. Fair enough. So I rush out there and I thought, man, I've got to get this truck moved before it runs out of diesel. And I fire and I put her in gear and I let off on the brake and I hit the throttle and I went about from here to the center of the circle, and I hear this crazy crunch. I thought, well, that's not good. That can't be good. What do you guys suppose that got ran over? My good leaf blower. And I jumped out, and I grabbed that thing. It's like, ah! I'm the victim of my own stupidity. I'm a victim of my own busyness. But do I have to maintain an identity of being a victim? 
Do I have to say that, oh, everything's against me? Oh, you know, if them Carlson boys wouldn't have left that truck in that way. Ah, if Tammy didn't need that fix. Ah, if my brother-in-law didn't need his log truck fixed. It's all everybody else's. I was tempted in the moment yesterday afternoon to blame everybody else for my own stupidity rather than saying, hey, and the Lord drew me up short. Hey, uh, it's funny how the Lord works. Uh, it's a simple question. Who left the leaf blower sitting right in front of a 10-wheel manure truck. I did. So I got to own it, knowing that, <laughs> knowing that uh, you know, I'm to blame, and then move forward. That's simply how God works, and that's how God was working here. Hey, own your problems, Israel. Own your, own your grumbling, Israel. But know this, know that I want to lead you forward. I want to provide a better place for you. I want to provide the perfect place. I've already promised it to you. All you have to do is take one step forward, one step at a time. But you've got to change your identity into being my child rather than your own victim. And the victim of what everybody else is doing. We've been talking for weeks about spiritual growth. We've been looking at all kinds of ideas and concepts out of the Word of God about what God uses and how He changes us, how He grows us, how He transforms us into His children. We've looked at concepts that hold us back from that process. Growth comes through taking risks Risks require a special dependency on God, a wholehearted dependency on God, a complete dependency on God. And in that dependency, in that, in that uh, change for us, one of the biggest things that we have to change our mentality out of is this idea of being a victim. Because when you're locked into being a victim, you'll always be locked into being a victim. That's the reality of it. It's no different than, than somebody that has gone through, you know, different recovery programs or, um, you know, alcohol or porn addiction problems, drug abuse programs. If you always see yourself as an alcoholic, even though you haven't, had a drink for 50 years, you're still locked in that same cycle. Your identity in your own mind has not even changed. You just simply haven't partaken. But you still see yourself that way. You still see yourself as a drug addict. People still see themselves as a addicted to porn, having sex addict problems. And they never embrace the identity and they never embrace the promises, and they never go to the place that God wants them to. They never embrace fully who God is. Because their identity hasn't changed. They're still that person that struggles. They're still that person that's, uh, that's uh, the victim of somebody else's actions. They're still that person that, that, is, that is always down here fighting to try to get up but the problem is is their fight is all their own when God fights for us 
He paves the way. When God fights for us, He already lays out the promise. He wants us to come to a point of decision-making. He wants to, us to come to the point of faith. We, can, we cannot enjoy the victory of Jesus if we live with the victim mindset. Now, I want to reemphasize that I'm sensitive to that. And I'm not minimizing anybody's situation. I'm not minimizing the pain, the hurt, the struggle, all the consequences. I'm not minimizing that. What I am encouraging us to understand, though, is that we always have an opportunity to change how we believe. We always have an opportunity to see our identity as different. And it's scary. It's scary to drop that and to embrace this. I understand that. If it wasn't scary, it wouldn't be living by faith. It would be living by sight. As reborn Christ followers, we're declared to be victorious overcomers. Romans 8.37 as we close, if the worship team wants to come on up. Romans 8.37, Paul simply states, after a long list of trouble, after a long list of difficult situations, he says this, he says, hey, we are more than conquerors. And we're only more than conquerors this way. We are more than conquerors through Christ's love. Through the gospel, we are more than conquerors. Right? John says in 1 John 5, 4, For whatever <clears throat> is born of God overcomes the world. Have we been born of God? For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our risky faith. Overcomes the world. Verse 5 says, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The rewards that Hebrews 11 talks about are more than worth the risks that need to be taken. You guys get that? The rewards, the partaking together of the promise that's the last verse in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. That reward is more than worth, more than worth it. And most of the people that Hebrews 11 talks about, they never saw it on this side of eternity. They're seeing it now. They're seeing it now. And we can see it now. The sad reality for Israel in the Numbers 13 and 14th story, chapter 13 and 14 story, is that not only did those who were over 20 have to die in the wilderness. But their sin, their not letting go of an old identity had a devastating effect, uh, effect on those that are around them. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. If I can encourage you guys, if there's one thing that you hear today, don't be that person. Right? Letting your wrong identity, if you're still struggling with that and grappling with that, don't let that affect so many other people. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus 
came to earth, that's why he died. That's why he was buried, 1 Corinthians 15. That's why he rose again. Was that you and I can have a new identity in him. So don't be that old person. And it's not just a matter of me trying harder to not be that old person. Although I have a part to play. I will tell you, 40 years ago, uh, maybe not 40, 30 years ago, I would have taken that, you know, leaf blower, you know, and I'd have taken it and just threw it as far as I could chuck it. And I would have said some not good things, right? I don't want to be that person. God's making me into a different person. He's making all of us into different people. When we understand and when we operate and when we believe and when we walk in faith and when we step into the promised land in faith. Because it's by faith, 1 John says. Right? So you're not going to know where that next foot's going to step, where it's going to go. But you've got to take the step. i got to take the step. What we discover now these years later is that I respond differently that you respond differently because you've been taking those steps keep taking those steps keep taking those steps keep stepping into the promised land allow God to open the doorway ahead of you and clear the land of the giants ahead of you Christianity is a risky faith it's a risky faith Do we get that? Do we understand that? Do we operate that way? Do we understand that that it means that that it's daily, it's risk from one risk to another? Some of them are perhaps more extreme than others. Right? Sometimes it means that we got to get up out of these chairs and do life with people that we don't know. Sometimes that means that we need to work through our issues and our broken relationships when it's easier to not. It's not walking by faith if we hold back what we know is right to do. The Bible calls it sin. Let's keep stepping in faith, folks. Let's keep stepping in faith. Worship team.